WDIY Lehigh Valley Public Radio presents Lehigh Valley Discourse. Provocative, informative, and newsworthy, Lehigh Valley Discourse brings you the people and the issues that move and shape our region here on WDIY. If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means WDIY presents to you Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm your host, John Pierce. Our topic this evening is one that fascinates me, and I hope it does you. It's history of our Revolutionary War, George Washington's troops, and particularly the housing of his troops. My guest is Dr. Stephen Elliott, who holds a Ph.D. in American military history from Temple University. Stephen, I was interested that the Ph.D. is not just in history, it's American military history. Yeah, well, you know, we tried to be specific. That's how I introduced myself. Yes. American military history, because that's what I read all the books on, and and that's what I write on. That's what you're writing on. His research, which broadly focuses on the social and administrative history of the Continental Army, has been recognized by awards and fellowships from the David Library of the American Revolution, the Fred W. Smith Library at Mount Vernon, the Society of the Cincinnati, the North Jersey Heritage Trail, and the New Jersey Historical Commission. And this evening we're going to be talking about Dr. Elliott's latest book, Surviving the Winters, Housing George Washington's Army and the American Revolution, which was published in March of this year by the University of Oklahoma Press. It studies how the need for military shelter during the war influenced Patriot strategy and contributed to the Continental Army's institutional development with a special focus on the winter encampments in New Jersey. Stephen currently teaches courses on national, local, and military history at Rutgers University, Newark. In addition, he has also worked as a park guide and volunteer for the National Park Service at Morristown National Historical Park. So uh, it's fair to say, Stephen, you are definitely a history buff. Yeah, I I think that would be a good way to describe it. (laughs) And you have done some really interesting writing, and we want to hear this evening about what General Washington's troops were up against, what General Washington was up against as he tried to corral all these guys and make them into an armed force. Where do we start with this whole story? Well, I think I can kind of relate this to how I came to the project, uh, which is there's been many books written on military history. There's been books written on you know, the weapons, the uniforms, how men were recruited, how they were paid, how they were fed. But I could never find a good book or even article on how they were housed, uh, how men were provided with shelter. Uh, I think if you look at sort of just paintings or, or, you know, film and TV depictions, you always see soldiers in tents. And that's sort of where the discussion seemed to end. Um, And and maybe barracks uh, as well. But at the same time, uh, I was, as you mentioned, working at, at Morristown National Historical Park in Morristown, uh, or right outside Morristown, and there were these little log cabins 
that we had at the park that our visitors would be very fascinated to come see and, and kind of take a tour of. And, and I would look at these and I would say, well, these aren't quite tents. These aren't quite barracks. Uh, they're kind of too big to be one, too small to be the other. And yet they're kind of a big part of the story. So where did they come from? What was their significance? And, and what role did, did things like these huts and, and also the barracks and tents play in the story of Washington's army? And, and that's what I set out to research. And, and six, seven years later, I'd, I had a book to show for it. Right. What an interesting topic. Let's, let's go. Do we start at Valley Forge or do you start somewhere else telling the story of how, how this whole thing progressed? I think if anyone is familiar with housing and army, uh, it's, it's usually that Valley Forge story, something that's still kind of printed in textbooks and, and taught in schools today. And, and the gist of that is, you know, Washington's army loses the capital, Philadelphia, to the British in 1777. They retreat to this sort of barren valley in, along the Schuylkill River, and they kind of build all these little log cabins and, and spend the winter there, and the soldiers are very hungry and conditions are not good. The German drill master, Baron von Steuben, shows up to train the army, and, and they kind of emerge from the winter uh, having gone through this sort of rigorous experience and kind of come out stronger and better disciplined and, and a much better army afterwards. And again, that's the narrative that I think most people are familiar with, and there's not exactly anything incorrect about that, but I found a, a story that's a bit more complicated and, and probably starts a bit earlier uh, than Valley Forge. So I would say to really understand this, you have to go back to the start of the war, uh, which was 1775, uh, or even earlier, uh, if you want to kind of look at the prehistory of it, um, into the earlier 18th century um, French and Indian War and that sort of thing. Right. I've seen paintings of Valley Forge during that when, and that was 1777 in December, correct? correct? Mm-hmm. And there, there you see the the log, they look like log cabins to me, mm-hmm. and I, I just never thought about well, who constructed those? Maybe they right. were there, and Washington came upon them and said, "Voila, we're going to we're going to make our campment here." How did how did he choose Valley Forge particularly? Right. Well, um, I, I think you, you hit on something very important: is where did these things come from, and and you know who built them? And essentially, what I found is that most armies at the time, and, and remember, the Continental Army, Washington's army, is, is essentially copying what other armies do. So their uniforms are very similar to, to you know other European armies, their equipment, their tactics, and it's it's basically an army that emulates European contemporaries. But in Europe, if an army wanted to say make winter quarters, like we think of. They would not build a camp like you've seen those paintings of Valley Ford. They would usually just sort of withdraw into a nearby city and kind of put all their men up in houses and taverns and inns and public buildings like that uh, and barracks if they were available. Uh, what I found with the Continental Army is that North America at that time was far less urbanized than Europe, meaning there were fewer towns and villages in which you could put soldiers. And for the most part, the only towns big enough to house an army were occupied by the British. So the British controlled New York City. Uh, During the Valley Forge winter, they controlled Philadelphia. 
So essentially, the option that most other armies would have used for winter housing was not open to the Continental Army. Uh, they couldn't winter in Philadelphia because the British were there, and the surrounding area didn't really have towns big enough uh, to house an army that may have been 15 or even 18,000 men strong. So what they had to do instead was basically build their housing from scratch, which meant sort of withdrawing into the hinterland, deforesting a, a kind of whole track of land, uh, chopping down all these trees and, and hewing them into logs to build these cabins uh, or huts, uh, as the soldiers referred to them, um, and then you know use those for their winter quarters. Uh, so Valley Forge was unique in military history as kind of the first time uh, we see an army that essentially builds its own winter quarters from scratch at the start of winter. Wow, that is really interesting. Yeah, the contrast between what was happening in Europe and what was happening here in North America at the time, the fact that in Europe they had cities that they could count on, they had structures already in place, and mm -hmm. here they had to make their own. Is there a particular reason, did uh, George Washington want to be near enough Philadelphia? Is that the reason Valley Forge was attractive to him? So there's the sort of baseline necessity that they need to build their housing, and then there's really a, a political element to it. The, the sort of civilian leaders of Pennsylvania are prodding him to keep his army close to Philadelphia, to keep an eye on the British and, and prevent them from sort of raiding and foraging in the countryside, which is why he picks Valley Forge, which is only you know, 15, 20 miles outside of Philadelphia. It's still close enough that you can stay in contact with the enemy. And, and, you know, one of the things that emerges from the Valley Forge winter is that it's not without fighting. You know, there's skirmishes and, and, and raids that happen on both sides throughout the winter, which is another sort of hassle soldiers have to deal with on top of building their own housing, dealing with winter conditions, supply interruptions, etc. Right. Was that winter in 1777 particularly a snowy one? No. Um, and, you know, that's one of these things where we sort of progress from the, the history to the legend and myth, um, if you will, is, is that a lot of people think Valley Forge was this horrible winter of, of you know, heavy snowstorms and, and, and cold temperatures. Yes. And there was certainly snow, um, and, and it certainly wasn't warm. But if you kind of read through soldiers' diaries and, and letters day by day, the weather is not exceptionally bad. I mean, it's a okay. winter in the northeastern United States. It, it was there was no picnic, but um, you know the Morristown winter two years later, 1779 to 1780, that was the winter that really stands out in terms of poor weather. Interesting. My guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse is Dr. Stephen Elliott, who has written a book, Surviving the Winters. Housing George Washington's Army and the American Revolution, and the fact that most of us don't think about housing troops. We think that they're out there fighting battles, and we're going to continue talking about how they got along during these winter months, having to construct their own housing quarters. Stay with us. We have to take a break now. I'm John Pierce here on Lehigh Valley Discourse.
Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. This is Marcy Lightwood, a WDIY member and volunteer since 1995. If you find that you must take a minimum distribution from your IRA this year, consider an IRA charitable rollover. It will allow you to minimize your tax obligations, meet your required minimum distribution, and make a contribution to WDIY, our NPR member station, for more than 26 years. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse. We're talking about a very fascinating book written by Dr. Stephen Elliott, who is my guest this evening. It's called Surviving the Winters, Housing George Washington's Army and the American Revolution. The Frigid Winter at Valley Forge, an iconic image in the popular history of the American Revolution. And we just mentioned that it was not a very horrific winter in 1777 at Valley Forge, but as Dr. Stephen Elliott said, it was no picnic either because it was cold and there was a certain amount of snow. I think some, some of the pictures that we get, some of the paintings, make you think that they were almost uh, knee-deep in snow, and that was not the case. Well, such winter camps, uh, Dr. Elliott tells us, which were a critical factor in the waging and winning of the War of Independence. Exploring the inner workings of the Continental Army through the prism of its encampments, surviving the winters. This book is the first to show how camp construction and administration played a crucial role in patriot strategy during the war. Stephen, what would you say about that aspect, the construction and administration playing a crucial role? Well, I think, especially in, in your area, uh, this might be a little bit easier to, to visualize for some people. The, what we call the Hudson Highlands, or the New York, New Jersey Highlands, is basically this strip of mountainous terrain that runs from the West Point area in New York uh, down through Passaic and Morris County, New Jersey, uh, down towards the uh, the Delaware River. And this area would have been very difficult to attack an army if they were based there. Uh, you know, very rough terrain. Uh, there's not really any water approaches to it other than the Hudson River. Uh, so if you have an army that you want to keep secure and, and, and protected from enemy attack, uh, the Highlands is a good place to do it. Uh, the problem is that especially in the 1770s, uh, it was a difficult place to house a large army because there were very few towns in this strip of mountainous terrain. Uh, so when I, I talk about strategy in the book, I, I basically say that Washington, uh, after the Valley Forge winter, so the, the kind of second half of the Revolutionary War, keeps his army ensconced in this mountainous terrain to keep an eye on the British uh, but avoid a direct battle in the field that he might not have been able to win. And so basically keeping an army in being to keep an eye on the British. 
And to do that, they needed housing uh, in this mountainous region. So from 1778 onwards, they're building these log hut camps at Middlebrook and Morristown and near West Point, uh, and essentially converting that entire 50-mile strip into just a sort of region of military infrastructure with housing and fortresses and supply magazines, etc. And that's really where he sort of nests the army for the next four years. It sounds like a brilliant strategy to me to use that yeah. terrain that way. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the British commander during this time, uh, Sir Henry Clinton, uh, based in New York, never really gets to fight a big battle with Washington. And, and during and, and after the war, he's sort of criticized by you know other British commanders and, and folks back in Britain uh, for being too cautious and timid. But when you look at the situation on the ground, um, you know, he would have essentially had to march his army from New York City up to Morristown or, or up to West Point over these hills through these sort of easy-to-defend passes in the mountains or, and, in West Point's case, attack a major fortress. So essentially, Washington made his opponent's task very difficult by keeping his army where he did. Had he gone for, say, an easier route and, and say, camped the army near White Plains in New York or Newark in New Jersey, places that were sort of in flatter terrain, uh, the army would have been much more exposed to attack, even if it might have been a little bit easier to house the soldiers in such places. Right. Well, you've mentioned structures along the way. We've emphasized Valley Forge first, but mm -hmm. then it, it was uh, the troops into New Jersey. And do, do many of these structures still stand today? No. You know, these huts were what we refer to as semi-permanent, so you could kind of reuse them for a year or two, but they really weren't going to last long term. And even during the war, you know, there's instances where, uh, you know, they'd build an encampment at Morristown for one winter, and then the following winter, they'd have to spend a lot of time fixing it up, just because even in the six months they were away, you know, they'd come back and some of the huts were falling apart. Uh, some local civilians would come in and deconstruct them, take the wood for, for firewood and whatnot. Oh, interesting. So uh, at the end of the war, um, their last encampment in Newburgh, the Army actually auctions the huts off for a dollar each. Um, so <laughs> people would come in and, and just help themselves to a, a hut's worth of wood. So what you see today at, say, Morristown, where I used to work, or Valley Forge, are reproductions. Uh, the ones at Morristown date from the bicentennial, so from 76. So we, we, we think they're fairly faithful recreations of what the soldiers would have had, but you know, aside from maybe a few piles of stone out in the woods where the hearths used to be for these huts, there's not really any structure left from the war itself. Right. And the fact that uh, there was a lot of wood being used, again, means that they're not going to last as long as if they were all stone. Right. You know, if you contrast uh, a hut with a, a barrack, you know, a much more substantial structure, like, say, the old barracks down in Trenton, uh, there you have something that's made of stone and, and, you know, actual posts and beams and mortar, and those will last a longer time. Right. Well, there's one sentence that really jumped out at me, Stephen, and that is that you remind us in, in your book that Washington's troops spent only a few days a year in combat. 
The rest of the time, especially in the winter months, they were engaged in a different sort of battle against the elements, unfriendly terrain, disease, and hunger. Wow. When I think about an army, I think that it's always fighting. I don't think only a few days during the year. Yeah, and, you know, that's, uh, again, looking from our, our sort of modern perspective where we think of, say, World War One, World War Two, where, where, you know, soldiers seem to be in combat constantly. Yes. But in the, say, era of the Revolution, that's not really the case. To give just one example for uh, the year 1778, so that's the end of the Valley Forge encampment, Washington's army breaks camp in June, uh, late June, so or mid-June, I should say. So that's basically six months of the year where they've mostly been in camp. And, and you know, some soldiers would be on picket duty, and, and there would have been some skirmishing, but, but certainly no large-scale battles. They do fight one battle with the British at the end of June, the Battle of Monmouth, um, which is a large battle that involves uh, a substantial chunk of the army. But after that, the British evacuate to New York City, Washington's army marches up to White Plains. They hang out there for a couple of months. Um, again, there's there's some skirmishing in, in northern New Jersey. There's some raids that go all the way down to the Pine Barrens. So small units, companies, or a regiment might have been involved in a few actions. But there's a good chance uh, that if you were in the army that year, you might have seen combat that one day at Monmouth and then not really anything else the rest of the year. Because, again, they spend the first six months at Valley Forge, and they retire to Middlebrook, uh, which was that winter's winter encampment, uh, at the beginning of December. So that's seven months right, right there. They're in winter encampments. It's sort of like uh, our idea that, uh, from television, of course, and movies, that police spend a lot of their time shooting when actually it's quite, quite the contrary. Yeah, you know, a lot of desk work and paperwork and exactly. uh, administrative so, duties. So this was true also of, of Washington's troops and his mm -hmm. army. Well, uh, beyond the encampment's basic function of sheltering soldiers, your study reveals their importance as a key component of Washington's Fabian strategy. What is that? Sort of like I was talking about earlier, this idea of avoiding a direct engagement with your enemy. You know, the British had a, a powerful army and a large navy backing it up, um, and, and a much more powerful central government to provide supplies and recruit. So the Patriot Army operated at a disadvantage for most of the war. Right. So, you know, and historians have sort of debated to what extent we should characterize Washington's strategy as Fabian, but it, it's the general idea that, that you avoid a direct battle with your enemy unless you have a really good chance of winning it and, and basically wage the war by keeping your army intact and threatening your opponent, but again, avoiding a, a direct engagement. Right. Well, one of the issues that Washington had was soldiers being conscripted. Is, is that the right word for it? Most of the army is, is, is volunteering, uh, so okay. I'm, I'm not quite sure I'd say conscripted. Right. There, are, there are exceptions to that. Okay. And then for how long would the soldiers be in service? Well, it depends on what part of the war you're talking about. So uh, first year of the war, the Continental Army is really made up of a collection of militias, which had various 
terms of service, but most of them left uh, around January 1st of the new year. So, you know, Washington would complain that, you know, I, I have to basically watch one army depart and then re-recruit it, which is what happened in 1776, where the army kind of comes back uh, again on a one-year enlistment. And, and as you might imagine, having to re-recruit your army every year is not a great way to fight a war. So in 1777, we see a, a, a sort of army that comes in under a different policy. Congress uh, declares that from now on, um, men will enlist for three years or the end of the war. Now, there's a gray area in there, because does that mean three years first or the end of the war if the war lasts longer, right. or three years maximum end of the war if it, if it ends in under three years. Uh, and this caused a problem later in the war, when you get to 1780, 1781, a lot of those men that enlisted in 77 say, well, my three years are up, I'm going home. And their officers will say, no, you enlisted till the end of the war, the war is not over yet. So that, that creates a lot of dissension and, and even mutiny in the ranks oh, wow. over interpreting that rule. Right. Morale problems. Very much so, yes, yes, indeed. Do we imagine that, do we know that the, the British troops were very well uniformed and supplied with, with their weapons and so on, and that Washington's troops were kind of a ragtag group? I would say that's mostly accurate. Um, again, the, the British have this powerful central government that's been financing and waging wars in Europe for a century, so they have their acts together in a way that the, the Continental Army and Congress don't necessarily have. Yes. But, you know, as with anything in history, there's exceptions, and, and, you know, I can imagine a British Army that had been on campaign for several months or it had its supply ships delayed could be in a situation where their uniforms were in tatters and they were not well supplied. And there's a few instances in the war when the Continental Army is actually pretty well fed and, and when uh, shipments of uniforms and whatnot from our French allies came in and, and they probably cut a pretty neat appearance. So I would say, in general, yes, the British are in, in better shape than the Patriots, but not always. Makes sense. Well, believe it or not, Stephen, our time is up for this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse. Dr. Stephen Elliott has been my guest. His latest book, Surviving the Winters, Housing George Washington's Army and the American Revolution. And he documents the growth of Washington and his subordinates as military administrators. Surviving the Winters book offers a telling new perspective on the commander's generalship during the Revolutionary War. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here on WDIY this evening. Thank you for having me. Best wishes for your next book <laughs> and your future teaching. Thank you. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in this evening. Thank you, James Johnson, for your good work on the board. I'm John Pierce, your host. Stay tuned for more Lehigh Valley Discourse. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. 
Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100, extension 6, or WDIY.org. Psst! Did you know your phone is a radio? You can tune into WDIY anywhere, on the go, with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store and turn your phone into your trusted public radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY on your phone, live, and play all your favorite music programs on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse on this almost Christmas Eve. I'm John Pierce, your host. In this half hour, we're going to have the pleasure of chatting with Bob Freeman, who is a Democrat serving Northampton County, District 136 in Harrisburg. He's been a member of the House 1983 to 94 and now 1999 to date. So, Bob, welcome. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome back. We we were talking about how you have been on the air on Lehigh Valley Discourse with Alan Jennings. Yes. Talking about politics. Well, and also some uh, policy issues in the Lehigh Valley. But yes, and of course on your program once as well. Right. And with me, it's not going to be politics this evening because Bob is a big devotee of the city of Easton. By the way, Bob, is Easton a town or a city? It is a city. Uh, We are officially a city of the third class. In Pennsylvania, you have cities of the first class, which are Philadelphia, cities of the second class, which are Pittsburgh, second class A, which for some reason is the only one is Scranton, and then cities of the third class are the most numerous. There's about 55, 56 of them across the state. All right, and that's by size. That's by number of inhabitants. That would be logical, which obviously flies in the face of the (laughs) operations of the General Assembly of Pennsylvania. Um, Initially it was, but now uh, once you gain that designation, uh, you pretty much keep it unless you decide to change your uh, municipal code. So most of the cities of the third class are sizable. Uh, Easton's at now about 28,000. Bethlehem, uh, Allentown, uh, Reading, Lancaster, York are somewhat bigger. Allentown is the third biggest city in the Commonwealth now. But there are some third-class cities that got the designated years ago uh, during their boom years when they had a bigger population and have shrunk considerably. Uh, so it's once you get it, you very seldom do away with the designation unless you choose to. Interesting. So a little bit about uh, Bob Freeman, married to Terry. Yep. For 25 years, is it? 25 years this uh, this year, yes. Well, silver anniversary. Yes. That's great. I'm not going to ask you what you bought her for the silver anniversary, for the silver <laughs> anniversary, Bob. I got her a nice silver necklace. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. So he answers the question anyway. <laughs> this is Bob. And you have stepchildren, Ryan and Kate. I do. Uh, grandchildren, And we had a new addition in August. Uh, Kate had a little girl, uh, Brooke. Oh, all right. Well, congratulations to her. And as an occupation, we have listed here legislator, but also teacher. Easton Area High School graduate, Moravian College, bachelor's, magna cum laude. Congratulations again after these many years. (laughs) 
We're going back to the 70s for this, folks. And Lehigh University, Masters in History, 1984. What was your interest in history at that point? Well, I actually gained an early history, uh, uh, interest in history, I should say, early on in my uh, academic studies uh, in public education. And um, when I went to Moravian, I double majored in history and political science and then went on to Lehigh where I got my master's in history. Uh, had a couple of uh, areas of interest and concentration. One uh, actually was, this is kind of obscure, but the interregnum period of English history, which took place during the English Civil War, the rise of Oliver Cromwell and the Republic, which was limited uh, in England during the 1650s. And um, more so uh, American history. Uh, I did a lot of study in the antebellum period, uh, the period right before uh, the Civil War, and in particular, uh, the transition of the second party system uh, from Whig to Democrat to Republican to Democrat, and did some research in that area. Uh, but I've also had an interest in the Progressive Era, the New Deal Era. Those were concentrations as well. All right. So Bob is really interested in the history of Easton, and you have been for years. Tell us a little bit about uh, what possibly historical does Easton have to offer? Oh, Easton has a wonderful history and a very rich heritage. You know, it's if you go back uh, to the beginnings, uh, obviously there was a strong Native American presence. The Lene Lenape lived within the Easton area. Uh, after the walking purchase, uh, which was really uh, a scam in terms of how it affected the local Native Indian population, but it ended up seeding uh, the area where Easton exists, as well as most of Northampton County, the Lehigh Valley, and even beyond. Uh, Northampton County was formed after that purchase was concluded. And in those days, it stretched uh, from its current area uh, that we know as Northampton County out to Lehigh and north into the coal region, actually going as far north as the uh, New York border. Tell, uh, tell us about the walking purchase. What exactly happened? There? Yeah, uh, William Penn was a very good governor of Pennsylvania, and he dealt fairly with the Indians, but his sons, not so. Um, the descendants of William Penn uh, pulled off a scam with the uh, Native Americans uh, in regards to the walking purchase. The idea was that um, they would cede land to the European settlers uh, that would be in the amount of what an individual could walk within a day. And William Start, Penn, Starting where? I don't recall exactly. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. Starting in Philadelphia uh, or? Um, it may area. have been, but I think it was further north. I think Because okay. uh, Bucks County already existed as a county. So it was probably closer to Mamie Morgan's Hill. But we'd have to go back and check that for accuracy. <laughs> they would see the land that an individual could walk within a day. And so the Native American tribes felt that wouldn't be that much. Well, the, the Penn brothers uh, pulled off a scam by having relay racers, and they ran. They didn't walk. So it included a lot more land, and uh, it, it really ended up cheating the Native American population. Should be calling the running purchase. Yeah, in actuality, you're probably right. Mm. But from that, uh, we do begin to see... Uh, uh, more intense European settlement of the Lehigh Valley and of Northampton County in particular. In the late 1730s on, there's particular influx of uh, uh, German farmers uh, into the Lehigh Valley. And then in 1752, uh, Easton is founded. The, the Penn uh, family wanted a sort of English outpost, a commercial outpost on the forks of the Delaware, the Delaware and Lehigh Rivers. And they chose Easton as a logical location because of the two river confluence. Um, and uh, we had a remarkable individual in William Parsons, who was the surveyor who laid out what uh, still exists as the street 
network in uh, our center square in downtown Easton in the 1750s. And so from 1752 on, Easton takes form. Uh, it becomes the county seat of Northampton County. There's a county courthouse that's erected in Center Square that stays there until uh, the mid-19th century when it's replaced uh, by a three-tiered Victorian fountain until around 1900 when it's replaced by the current Soldiers and Sailors uh, Civil War Monument. So Easton began to emerge as a, a commercial hub, and its prominence really from the 19th century or 18th century, 19th century into the mid to late 20th century was as a commercial uh, hub. It's a little known fact that in its commercial heyday, downtown Easton's business district, its commercial district, uh, was roughly the same size as Allentown's, which oh. was uh, four times in population in those days. Oh. But it was in large part because uh, Easton's shopping district was so robust that it became sort of the shopping mecca for people who lived on the eastern half of Northampton County. And a lot of the farm families that lived in what was very rural uh, western New Jersey in those days. And I remember as a, as a young boy going downtown Easton in the early 60s, and it was a very bustling, uh, very healthy uh, commercial district with department stores and clothing stores and hobby stores and movie theaters and restaurants and drug stores, you name it. It had the whole array of a traditional downtown. Did they still have streetcars in those days? No, that was before my time. Um, okay. They um, did have streetcars uh, to great extent uh, from the early 20th century until about the 1950s when they were discontinued. And it was a very marvelous uh, streetcar system or, or trolley system. They really made traveling around the Lehigh Valley very easy. Uh, there was a honeycomb network of trolley lines that connected all the towns. Oh, man, I'd like to see that again. Oh, it would be marvelous. <laughs> and I've actually proposed that concept back in the 1980s to connect the three cities through a trolley line, and maybe someday that'll become a reality. But the network actually was so extensive that you could take a trolley from Easton all the way up to Allentown, and then you could transfer it to an interurban trolley line that took you into Philadelphia. So you literally could take a trolley from your home to Allentown to Philadelphia in those days. And, of course, we had great train service back then, too. You could right. take the Lehigh Valley Railroad into New York City on a regular basis. Uh, and their Black Diamond um, uh, car had a, a dining car in it. It was a very uh, posh way of traveling to New York in those oh, days. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. the good old days. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Bob, uh, you mentioned William Parsons being a surveyor and laying out the, the, the grid, which is the streets of Easton, correct? Correct, yes. Is there influence from Philadelphia on that? Because I notice, I've always been curious about Front Street is on the east, and then as the numbered streets get larger toward the west, it's exactly like Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a very good point. I'm not sure if there's a direct influence, but uh, William Penn in, in founding Philadelphia did go with the, the grid pattern. Uh, if you look historically at the early colonial towns of um, of uh, America. They, they did uh, differ greatly depending upon the period and time in which they were founded. Uh, by the late 17th century into the early 18th century, you get Philadelphia, you get Savannah, all of which are built on a grid pattern, which is a very flexible and easy to get around pattern uh, to, to have a city. But then you have the Dutch influence in lower Manhattan and the uh, sort of organic influence of, of a street network in Boston where the streets are winding and, and there's no real pattern to it. It's just sort of an organic building out from where the settlements emerge. Right. So there were different patterns that were followed. And we uh, were fortunate that we came in the period when the more rational, logical grid was applied and made it much more easy to get around the, the town. And of course, there's the famous Parsons-Taylor 
house in Easton. Correct. It was owned. Uh, it's uh, owned by the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution, the George mm-hmm. Taylor chapter now. Mm-hmm. But it's a good representation of the kind of townhouse that would have existed in the mid 18th century. Uh, originally owned by William Parsons, the surveyor who laid out Easton, and then at one point either owned or rented. I don't recall which by George Taylor who uh, was uh, our signer of the Declaration of Independence uh, in 1776. And unfortunately, both of those men lived in the house for about a year and then died. Yes, I think uh, Taylor's ownership of the home was was rather limited. And interestingly, he was buried in uh, St. John's Lutheran Cemetery across the street. But at one point, uh, the tombs that were in that uh, cemetery were uh, uh, exhumed. And he was then taken to Easton Cemetery uh, at the North 7th Street. And there's a major uh, obelisk monument to him above his grave uh, right outside of the chapel. Uh, that site became George Taylor Elementary School, which was a beautiful brownstone uh, elementary school built in the 1870s, at the time the most expensive elementary school that the school district in Easton had. But it was gorgeous. Uh, if you look at photographs of it, it was a brownstone building. Second Empire mansard roof, big oak doors, marble staircase, chandeliers. That unfortunately came down during urban renewal, which was a sad chapter in Easton's history. Knocked it down, created a parking lot. We lost a number of neighborhoods in urban renewal, the Lebanese-American neighborhood in downtown in particular. And what what decade was that? That uh, started to occur in the 60s and kind of uh, finished out in the 70s when people began to say, enough, you know, you're taking down too many buildings, too many neighborhoods. And urban renewal had emerged out of uh, a well-intentioned but very misguided approach to how you revitalize cities. Uh, It had started as slum clearance during the Depression, but by the 1960s and 70s, it had morphed into this policy where they were tearing down very stable, usually ethnic or minority neighborhoods in inner cities with plans for a very modern neighborhood or, or tall tower building kind of process to emerge. And that ended up uh, really depleting the city of population, tax-rateable properties, affordable housing, and most importantly, a customer base for the downtown stores. When that Lebanese neighborhood was there, it really was the mainstay of the downtown commercial stores, even after suburban mall development. So with its loss, the, the town did begin to go through a decline. The commercial district atrophied. But it has since bounded back beautifully in terms of a very robust restaurant scene, uh, good festivals, a great farmer's market, and some outstanding institutions like the State Theater. We're going to talk about Easton of today. We're talking about the history of Easton now with Bob Freeman here on Lehigh Valley Discourse. Time for us to take a break. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Are you interested in inspiring and informing future generations through WDIY's programming? A gift through your will, retirement plan, or estate plan is a wonderful legacy to leave to those that will need a trusted place to hear what's going on in the world. For information about naming WDIY as a beneficiary, please call 610-694-8100 or visit WDIY.org forward slash legacy. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. Each month's special focus highlights an artist, label, or event with a featured CD at midnight. That's every Thursday night at 11 right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and the free WDIY radio app. Many choices, real voices.
And we're back with Bob Freeman talking about the history of Easton, PA. Bob, you've filled us in uh, of many of the details going to the 18th century. Uh, Easton founded in 1752. Correct. And then uh, talking about 18th and 19th centuries. And today I hear many people, not just here and there, but many people talking about how attractive Easton is for the restaurant scene. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the restaurant scene emerged uh, as Easton was becoming to rebound from its uh, experience with urban renewal. Uh, it was being rediscovered, particularly by a lot of restaurateurs out of New Jersey who uh, liked the, the setting, the architecture, the proximity uh, to uh, you know other markets to bring people in. And so we have a wealth of outstanding restaurants. And I think one of the things that distinguishes Easton's restaurant scene from a lot of other communities is its great diversity. Uh, you have everything from uh, a French bistro to Mexican to, to Thai to uh, Asian fusion uh, to Italian, Lebanese. Um, you also have great uh, New York-style restaurants uh, that uh, provide a wonderful setting like uh, River Grill, Pearly Bakers, uh, and Oak, which right. is a New York-style steakhouse. So you get a real diversity. Also, Indian has shown a presence in Easton, too, exactly. Indian restaurants. So it's, it's fantastic. Really? And one of the uh, memories that I have in my mind is seeing you walk your mother down 4th Street toward Angelo's. Yes. We, Give uh, them a little shout out here. Yeah, Angela's is a great place. And you would take her to lunch there. Or breakfast, normally. Or, or breakfast. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. usually would go to the farmer's market, which, again, is a great farmer's market and has really mushroomed into 40 vendors at this point. Uh, but we would go to the farmer's market. It was a great day out. Uh, and uh, I'd treat her to breakfast at uh, Angela's. She yeah, was very fond of their cream chip beef on toast. Oh, all right. Which, yeah. And she was uh, elderly, so you were walking slowly, and she was on your arm. Just a wonderful scene. Yeah. Mom, yeah. Mama's a great person. I, I miss her. She passed away five years ago. Oh, so. wow. But uh, a wonderful person, a remarkable person. Uh, a good nurse, too. She was a nurse at Easton Hospital for many years and uh -huh. loved nursing. Well, Bob, what's your reaction to this that I found online in my extremely deep research uh, on Easton to get ready <laughs> for our interview? Uh, best time to visit Easton, June, July, and August. Uh, I really think uh, any time is a good time to visit Easton. Uh, <laughs> between the farmer's market, which runs from the first Saturday in May until the end of the year, and then there's a um, less frequent but still present winter market that goes on. Uh, the farmer's market, by the way, has, has just been a tremendous success. Um, I remember uh, at one point it had dropped to one vendor in Center Square. Oh, wow. Yeah, Gloria Robb was her name. She was a farmer <laughs> out of New Jersey, and she ran the last stand that was operating um, by around, I think it was 2002, uh, if I remember correctly. And then she tragically died and passed passed away. And uh, I and Lynn Pryor and some other local citizens didn't want to see it disappear. So we organized a, a sort of Friends of the Eastern Farmers Market. We reached out to the Penn State uh, Farm Extension. And in the first Saturday in May uh, of 2003, we reopened with 15 vendors. 
and it has since grown exponentially. Um, we have a great farmer's market manager in Megan McBride. She does an outstanding job. And now, uh, this year and last year, it's been along uh, Larry Holmes Drive, uh, along the uh, Delaware and, and uh, Lehigh Rivers. And we have about 20 vendors in high season. And it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to get locally grown fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, even organic meats, dairy, uh, various crafts and prepared foods. And you're talking only about the outdoor market. Correct. We also have the Easton indoor market, the Easton public market, which started operating, I believe, in 2016 has also had tremendous success. Uh, It's kind of a, a newer version of like a Reading Terminal market. There's vendors that provide various uh, items as well as a great place to grab lunch with prepared foods. Very informal atmosphere. Yeah. In fact, I got into something there, Bob, that it was quite funny. A few years ago, they they ran a program from the YWCA, Mother's Morning to Walk Around the Indoor Market. Oh, okay. So at a time that there weren't very many customers in there, they would have the mothers for about an hour walking around, many of them pushing baby carts in, in front of them. Oh, nice. And I asked, uh, I needed exercise. I asked if I could join in, so I did. <laughs> and so I was the only non-mother in that group. That was fun. Sounds like it. The ind- I wish they called it the indoor market because then it, it differentiates it from, oh, from yeah. the outdoor. It is called the Easton public market, but I, public. I see your point. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Easton as interest uh, in, in education and of course, we go right to Lafayette College mm-hmm. for that. And that the college was founded uh, 1826. 1826. Yeah. Okay. And there's a, a plaque uh, in Center Square. Correct. That the the college was founded on that spot. Yes. And then moved up the hill. To the hill. Yeah. Where it's had a, a, a very prominent presence uh, since it's right. uh, moving there. All right. So does the fact that you did not attend Lafayette College does that mean that? In the big Lafayette-Lehigh football game, <laughs> you are rooting for Lehigh? Well, it divided loyalties because Lafayette is a school in my district. Uh, and a lot of my family did attend Lafayette. As a matter of fact, I applied to Lafayette. I applied to East Stroudsburg, and I applied to Moravian when I was looking at undergraduate schools. And um, I was accepted at all three, but Moravian came back first. And Moravian allowed a double major, which I wanted to pursue in history and political science, and at that time, Lafayette did not. So it kind of made my decision for me. But uh, yeah, I, I, I could have gone there, but I ended up at Moravian, which is a great school, and I had a wonderful experience there. Yes, it is. Yes. We have a, a, a road called Larry Holmes Drive. Yes. Now, after talk, the champ. Talk a little bit about Larry Holmes. It was. Larry's, you know, his personal story is an amazing story. I mean, he, uh, uh, his family, I think, came originally from South Carolina, if I remember correctly. He moved to Easton. He got involved in uh, training on boxing at the old St. Anthony's Youth Center on 9th and uh, uh, Washington. Washington Street. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he began to excel as a boxer and uh, entered into the world of professional boxing, did an outstanding job. And I can still remember the night in Easton when my, my younger brother and our buddies were watching uh, uh, the Larry Holmes uh, uh, Norton fight, I believe it was, that gave him the championship. Um, I think it was Norton. Trying to and that was around 1980. Yeah, it would have been late 70s, early 80s, if I right. recall. And the town just went wild when he won that night. It was a, <laughs> a great day for Easton, and uh, people were out 
driving Northampton Street, honking their horns, right. and uh, the town went wild. But and now there's the statue down there. Of yes, Larry Holmes at, at the confluence of the two rivers. And uh, yeah, Larry is a local hero. You know, he uh, he did well in boxing, and he continued to be active in the community after his boxing career for many many years. Speaking of local heroes, uh, our engineer James Johnson. Uh, lives in Easton, and mm-hmm. he, I know for years, has thought that uh, on the billboards or any sign welcoming folks to Easton, that they could very well put their home of Larry Holmes and James Johnson. What, <laughs> would you would you propose that to the state legislature? Well, I'm afraid I'll have to defer comment on that, but <laughs> I, I appreciate his sentiments and desire to uh, see it promoted. <laughs> He doesn't self-promote very much, does he? <laughs> what about a very, well, I consider to be a kind of a unique thing. There are probably others somewhere in the world, but the mule-drawn canal boat ride. Yes. Humor Park, um, the canal boat ride along the Lehigh Canal is a, is a, a favorite activity. Uh, and it's a great site also because the Canal Museum is down there. And there's wonderful pavilions and uh, recreation for the kids. That's one historical point to note, too. Easton was, uh, prior to the Civil War, a big canal town. Three major canals uh, converged on Easton. You had the Lehigh Canal from Whitehaven down to Easton. You had the Delaware Canal from Easton down to Bristol, just north of Philadelphia. And then you had the Morris Canal in New Jersey from Phillipsburg uh, out towards Newark. And so it was a major hub of canal activity when that was the original transportation system from moving bulk goods like coal from the uh, uh, coal region in the Northeast. Mm. Obviously, it got uh, supplanted by the railroad system, which came in in the 1850s, I believe. Uh, and that became the driving force for transportation and industry. But the canals uh, still operated into the 1930s, usually uh, transporting bulk goods like coal. Uh, so it had a big influence on Easton. And you can experience a little bit of what that felt like by going down to the Canal Museum and the Humor Park uh, setting. Yes, exactly. A nice little excursion for a a pleasant day in Easton. We have, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Christopher Black, who uh, heads the Bachman Players. Yes, Chris does a marvelous job. Yes. Uh, in fact, the, the the impetus for this interview came from, well, one, one of the memories that I have, it was on Heritage Day. Mm. Let's explain a little bit. What is Heritage Day? Why isn't it on the 4th of July? Oh, good point. Uh, Easton has the distinction of being one of only three cities that had a public reading of the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. Uh, the cities were Philadelphia, Trenton, New Jersey, and Easton. And um, uh, Robert Levers made it to Easton with a copy of the Declaration, and it was read publicly in our center square, our great square, uh, on the steps of what was then the county courthouse. Uh, and that took place on July 8th. So we celebrate Heritage Day in recognition of that fact on July 8th. And Chris, uh, in uh, the most recent years, has been the one to play the role of Robert Levers and to read the Declaration. Uh, so it's a, uh, in fact, this year in particular, there was a greater emphasis on the historic aspects of, of that day. And it was a great Heritage Day in general. But yeah, it's a prominent day in our calendar and a way to take pride in our city, but also in the history of the country. And that's July 8th. July 8th. That it was they read act- in 1776. Yeah, and they actually hold it on the Sunday, I think, closest to the period of July 8th or right after right. July 8th. So I was uh, dressed in garb that uh, Christopher Black lent me ah. from the Bachman Players. And I was standing outside the Parsons-Taylor house 
with a couple of ladies who were also dressed in the yes, 18th I century. Yes, I recall seeing you, yeah. And here, here you came along with a gaggle of visitors, <laughs> and you were talking about the history of East. Yeah, I think you had a wand, a kind of a long wand in your hand. And uh, as you came along, somebody asked me a question that I couldn't answer. And I said, well, here's Bob Freeman. Maybe he can. And you went with ab- <laughs> about two or three minutes with the answer <laughs> on what was happening right across the street from the Parsons Taylor House. Oh, at, at St. John's Lutheran Church, at probably. St. John's yeah. Lutheran. And that, that's the uh, location where the, 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 they used to have the very elaborate elementary school that you mentioned. Yes, George Taylor Elementary was George in Taylor. where the parking lot is today. And right. prior to that point, it was the cemetery for the, for the church. But right. uh, yeah, I was fortunate on Heritage Day, they asked me to lead a couple of historic walking tours of the downtown, which, which I enjoyed. And I, I hope the people who attended enjoyed as of well. Of course they did. You talked about urban renewal and how that was an up- upheaval for certain families. Yes, uh, and, and the town in general. And, you know, fortunately, we have rebounded from that, and we have a great revitalization going on. But I've often wondered how Easton would have fared had we never experienced urban renewal, if we had continued along the great path we were on. But as it is, we've come back greatly. So many activities to mention in the short time left here. Uh, we haven't talked about State Theater. Yes, a wonderful theater. Uh, they're kicking off their season, of course, this this fall and winter. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful theater. It's a great Beaux-Arts theater uh, from the early part of the 20th century that was lovingly restored. That actually was uh, targeted for the wrecking ball during urban renewal, but it was saved by local citizens who didn't want to see it disappear. And they uh, renovated the theater, and it's, it does a marvelous job of uh, offering live performances uh, in, in downtown Easton. We encourage folks to get in touch with the State Theater for uh, music and dance and opera and whatnot. So how many different festivals in Easton? Here's what I have. Heritage Day in July. Clam Jam, also July. Uh, it's in September. Oh, is that in September? Yeah, actually it's uh, right after uh, Labor Day in mid-September. Okay. And then also in September, the Riverside Festival of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, October, Food Truck Festival and Garlic Fest. Yep. In November, the Bacon Fest. Yes, that's a very popular that, one. Oh, yes. Draws a huge Tell crowd. me about it. Yeah. <laughs> bacon. <laughs> Eat that on anything, even on a chocolate sundae. What's not to like? <laughs> and then the Peace Candle Lighting mm-hmm. in November, and that's around Thanksgiving that weekend, and Small Business Saturday. So, so much going on in Easton and so much history behind it, too. Yes. Bob Freeman has been my guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse. Thanks so much, Bob, for coming by and chatting with us. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. He loves history. You can tell it. It's a passion. Our engineer this evening has been the aforementioned James Johnson. And I'm John Pierce, your host. So glad to have you with us on this almost Christmas Eve. So we wish you a Merry Christmas and hoping that 2022 will be a wonderful year for us all. That's it for Lehigh Valley Discourse. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor.